1: Rockheads, take off your boxing gloves and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 240 with guests Ted Neward and Oren Eini, recorded live Wednesday, May 16, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now bringing the VBNet Masterclass on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, The leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who up until five minutes ago thought it stood for Old Recycled Motherboards, Carl Franklin. Thank you very
2: much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Hey, it's only been a couple of days, but here we are again. I'm Carl Franklin on the East Coast of the United States of America on the West Coast... Of Canada.
0: It's Richard Campbell. Hi, Richard. Yes, sir. And we may be on opposite coasts and three time zones apart, but we both know when to drink some scotch.
2: Yeah. And, uh, Richard and I sort of have this, I don't know, this panache for fine single malt scotches. And, um, neither of us, I don't think, have a real drinking problem, but we, uh, we like to sip. I and, don't miss my mouth even once. Yeah. And, uh, I got this, um, Gift for Richard for Christmas because I couldn't get him a uh, membership in the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society without serious, like, tax issues. I don't know.
0: Booze crossing the border is a problem. Not good, yeah.
2: <laughs> so I got you a uh, a membership in this club where they have functions, Scotch-tasting dinners, and you get invited out to go to these things. And they pass around, what, do they break out bottles or do they pass around little shots of... Of different scotches and tell you about them
0: and do presentations. Yeah, after we eat, they line up eight bottles of scotch and everybody gets a taster, which is about a quarter ounce. Yeah. And so at the end of it, you have slugged back two ounces and then they try and burn off the bottles, which really gets you into trouble. Yeah. But you get a variety of tastes and my wife likes it too. She came along, she takes notes and then goes out and buys the bottles. It certainly is interesting the range of flavors and and some of these
2: descriptions of these scotches in the catalogs that you get are just over the top. <laughs> pencil shavings, ah, I yes, saw. Yes, the great one.
0: flavor of pencil shavings.
2: But uh, yeah, that you you've never known that a single sip of scotch could have forty seven distinct flavors. It's just amazing. And when I tried it, I. Good and tasty. No, I taste one, basically. Okay, there you go. Maybe, what are you drinking tonight? Maybe a finish. Yeah, this one is called Christmas Cake from the uh, Scotch Malt Whiskey Society in uh, the vaults from Leith, Scotland. Cask number 80.3, aged <laughs> in oak 20 years, distilled January 85, bottled June 05,
0: 51.9% alcohol. That is a very strong scotch. Yeah, it
2: is. And it, and it, you know, you don't drink
0: very much of it. You just have a little bit. Right. That's all you need. Well, and I'm just drinking good old-fashioned Woodford Reserve bourbon. All right. Well, and just
2: to set the record straight, we don't usually do the show drunk. No. Nor are we drunk now.
0: No. Just Just, having a little taste because it's late in the evening. little taste, and here
2: we go. We have a couple of emails. Yes. This one from Ben Sherman, and uh, he says, uh, This subject is about and hibernate. Uh, he says, "Hey, Carl and Richard, I'm having a really hard time keeping up with you guys now that you're running twice a week. I got a Zoom for Christmas, and I'm riding the bus to work now, so I'm getting caught up again. Uh Wow, three references to Christmas—totally different
3: in the, in the <laughs> intro
2: today. Did you notice this? I did not, but okay. <laughs> I don't, you know, and it's May. It is May. All right." He says, I wanted to chime in on the nHibernate and ORM in general debate, and I'll stand firm with the ORM crowd. Can we please stop putting all of our logic in the database? Please, seriously, put the data set down for a change (laughs) and see what it's like to build real domain-driven applications using objects. Oren Eaney's show is great. He's one of my favorite nHibernate bloggers, and keeping up with his blog entries is almost as hard as the DNR shows. I'm really looking forward to the ORM Smackdown because he has the guts to stand up to any of the naysayers.
0: That he does. Yes, sir. And that's what we're going to be hearing in just a few minutes. Well, yeah, and of course, Dev Teach had this incredible contingent of N Hibernate folks. Let me read you one other email, and then we can talk about the Smackdown, which is tonight's show. Okay. Uh, This is from Evan Hoff, and it says, First off, I love the shows. I follow both podcasts and the videos. You guys rock. I just finished listening to the Eric Evans episode, and I'm currently listening to Carl's interview on the Polymorphic Podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did, however, want to ask a huge favor. I would love to hear you guys do an interview with Udi Dahan. Hey. Of all the podcasts I listen to, you guys do the best job at the interpersonal side, the interviewing skills. I think Udi would do a great show with you guys. He has a lot of amazing knowledge around SOA and messaging that I bet a lot of us listeners could use. I know I could.
2: As a matter of fact, we saw Udi last week, didn't we?
0: Did, yes, indeed. And I had a great conversation with him. I wish I'd had a tape recorder going because it was just, you know, he what a brilliant guy. Yeah. So I cornered him and said, Udi, we need you on the show. And he said, absolutely. So no we're going to get him on the schedule. Sometime this summer, we'll get a chance to hear from Udi DeHaan.
2: It pays to write to .NET Rocks at franklins.net. Tell us what you want.
0: Yeah, That's what and we'll, we'll make it come true. And it signs off with number one rockhead Evan Hoff. All right.
2: And uh, before we introduce the show, let me just uh, pull up the Code Camp music here, right. and we'll announce a couple of Code Camps coming up. The Raleigh Code Camp on June 23rd. You can read about it at Shrinkster.com slash 017.
0: And a show out of Reading, UK, where we've been. We have done uh, a conference there a V-bug. year or two ago. The show is called Developer, Developer, Developer. <laughs> and you can <laughs> read about it that. at Shrinkster.com slash P80. And, of course,
2: Greg Brill is still hiring .NET Rocks listeners down in New York City for Infusion, a great company to work for in a great town. And uh, not only that, but to, to get you down there, he's going to give you an apartment for a year free. Awesome. Yep. Read about it at shrinkster.com slash KH6. All right. I guess we've got to introduce this show. Yeah. So we went to DevTeach last week, which is a conference in Montreal, Quebec. And there was about three or 400 people there, right? Yep. But the talent that
0: was there was unbelievable. The roster of speakers was off the hook. It was off the hook. And, and so intimate, you know. You, right. you can have lunch with anybody you want. You
2: know, very European style right here in North America. And, and we just had a great time. The content was great. The the, the, the culture was great. Uh, and everything was great. JR does a good job. So we uh, got Ted Neward and Oren Eni, or Ayande Rahim, as he is also known. Yes. Together in the same room across the same table to discuss their different viewpoints on object-relational
0: mapping systems. And it wasn't a big crowd. It was late at night. But, boy, what an animated conversation. It was. And you can see by the the picture
2: (laughs) on the website today that these guys have different philosophies and different approaches to ORM systems. But you know what I think is interesting, Richard? At
0: the end of the day, they came to some agreements. Well, was there really any doubt at any point that ORM had validity within this space. Right. And I don't think anybody disagreed with that in the end. So that, I think, was a very strong part of the conversation. But listen for yourself. Tell us what you think. And here it is, the ORM Smackdown.
2: Hey, DevTeach, welcome to .NET Rocks!
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> hey, Richard Campbell, how are you? I am well, and you, sir? Well, I'm okay. We're in some sort of
0: weird theater thing. It's uh, it's interesting. It looks like a 1930s theater, but sort it's of way too small. Art Deco, kind of. And it has a mirror ball. I don't think I've ever had a chance to do a show with a mirror ball it's before. It's a 1930s disco. There you know. go.
2: Our guests are here. <laughs> what more do you need, really? Ted Neward, hi. How are you doing, Carl? And Orinini. Hi. So we are here to discuss object relational mapping, which is... The theme of today's uh, Smackdown, and I think probably the last show we're going to do for a while on uh, ORM. We've done a whole bunch of them. Suffice it to say, uh, and any one of you guys can take this first observation wherever you want. Suffice to say that ORM is um, covers a wide variety of products and a, and a whole big scope of technologies but the basic idea is that you want to map objects into databases and databases into objects with fairly little or no coding effort once the mapping is done is that the idea ted well i think i think you have
4: i think there's a further categorization that can take place you can have you know uh, the and i don't have names for these so i'm just going to have to do this by description but there are those tools that will try to make it easier for you to express your SQL and harvest the results, there are those tools that will try to provide the object abstraction layer on top of the, the relational database so that you never have to see SQL. And there's a fairly significant difference between those two. In some respects, that's the difference, for example, between an NHibernate and an .net. Um what I've seen so far, the link entity framework fits very squarely in that first category where I want to see objects, objects and nothing but objects. Whereas, you know, clearly something like an ADO.net uh would fit into the second category. Data sets would you know, arguably fit more into the second category than the first, but there's a clear distinction between those two. We can certainly debate as to which ones are which.
3: I don't think the data sets qualify as an uh, ORM strategy at any rate. Well, data sets are basically taking the the tabular data from the database and putting it into my uh, in, into my memory basically. So it's not object not it's not objects in the term that is not object oriented basically. So. A lot of the things that I can do with object relational mapping, I can basically do, I can do with the uh, data sets. Tableau data is just data. I don't do anything interesting with it. So I guess I, I hear what
4: you're saying, right? But, but in some respects, and, and, and again, this is why there is, there's definitely categorization within the ORM space, right? Within the ORM, uh, taxonomy. There's, there's those tools. Like ADO.NET, like, you know, data sets and so forth that will provide less of an abstraction layer, less of a I want to grab tabular data and make it easier to extract. Um, And IBATIS fits into that category somewhere. You're still working with SQL statements. It's just now they're going to extract it into a custom object model that you get to define, whereas in the case of data set, it's being extracted into a data model that Microsoft has defined.
3: Um, yes and no. I think that, uh, if you, to, if you're talking about, uh, ORMs, you have the ones that are going, co- uh, toward, more toward the object model where in uh, their API and you working against object. And you have the one like iBatis, you still working against the object and only objects. But, uh the level, the amount of control you have, in, in, to the database, the amount of control that you want to have, uh, uh Interface to the database is completely different, because IBATIS, you want to have complete control, and IBATIS is a, a framework that is meant to give you the complete control that you want. And a dataset doesn't give you anything beyond the data in the database, so I wouldn't call it an object-relational mapping and in, in, any, in any meaningful way. I get the data. It's similar like I read the file and get the byte array in my memory.
2: Can you tell us about ibatis.net just a little bit? I don't think that's one we've discussed on. Uh, Clinton Began, the guy who created ibatis, is a buddy of mine from the No Fluff
4: Tours. And basically, ibatis.net is a more or less direct port of the ibatis framework from Java. What they, what, what, basically, ibatis comes in two flavors. They call it a data mapper and a DAO framework. Right, so the idea here is that when it, in, in in the Java space, right we have data access objects which are intended to sort of wrap how you access the database, and then we have data transfer objects, which are basically objects that are disconnected from any sort of database backend and are intended specifically for transmission across the wire
3: no behavior right?
4: no behavior right these are not intended to be domain objects, these are purely intended to be. Almost data structures, if you will. And the data mapping portion of, of IBATIS is intended to make it easy for me to specify a SQL string in a configuration file, right? And then that, that the, the parameters, the return set from that SQL string gets harvested out of the JDBC or radio.net call and stored into an object model, and you have a configuration file that controls how the mapping takes place.
2: And all, so then all the, uh, the objects just show up. They're just there. It does all of that goo for you.
4: Yeah. What'll happen is IBATIS will, will, will take the response, will instantiate an object of the type specified in the config file. And then basically we'll set the fields or set the properties based on all the values that come back out of the, the, the query. So you. You know, you, Carl, don't have to create the objects. You've told Ibadis how to create those objects and Ibadis has populated. And those objects could conceivably be, uh, behavioral objects, domain objects, rich domain objects.
2: Well, one of the questions that we got, Richard, from our, uh, uh, listeners when they found out we were doing this was there seems to be a lot of emphasis on dynamic SQL here in ORM, uh, tools and, uh, where we, we've been Fed a steady diet of stored procs, stored procs, stored procs. Now, all of a sudden, here's an application in which it's actually uh, much easier to not use stored
3: procs. So, what's going on here, Allende? Yes. And so, yesterday I was at the entity talk demo or something like that. And one guy stood up and said that the entity framework is going to take the industry 10 years back. Because the editing framework designer wouldn't generate a a stop procedure from the database like the Visual Studio 2003 did. And I found this simply hilarious. Because that was Microsoft uh, getting uh, their own uh, guidance back. And uh, and now that that, that they have to show that we meant what he said now but now it's different. Because basically, when you're talking about store procedure versus a dynamic SQL, and when I'm talking about dynamic SQL, I'm talking about a parameters query, nothing like a concatenate string or anything like that. So when you have store procedure, store procedure has several purposes uh, the way I see it. there are for data, bulk data manipulation, there are for a maintenance in the database, there are for a, some specific cases where performance is important. But I don't see it uh, adding value to the application over trying to go to the database directly. Because I think that 90% of the stop procedures that are used today are simply wrappers around very simple uh, select, insert, or delete uh, statement.
2: Well, what about the argument of security and providing that layer of programmability on top of the database?
3: ODBC is not an API. ODBC is something that you're talking to the database suite. So if you're, go- if you're in the state where store procedure are your API to your application, you've basically turned your database into an application server. And SQL 2005 can actually do a, a function in this role fairly well. It has the, uh, this capability, but this is not how I think about the database. A database is someone that stores my data, that handles my queries, but uh, it doesn't handle it shouldn't handle business It Shouldn't handle a a lot of this stuff that store procedures trying to do. Well, and, well,
4: and, and and part of the reason I think, right, you know, not to interrupt you, but I'm going to interrupt you. <laughs> um Part of the reason I think we see this emphasis on dynamic SQL actually has to come with has to be attributed to the fact that. A lot of these projects that we're seeing moving into the .NET space, like in Hibernate, in many cases are ports of existing Java projects where stored procedures... You guys have been fed a diet of stored procs. We've been fed a diet of avoid stored procs like the plague, the Java... In the Java world. In the Java world, right, right, right. In the Java world, we've been told that stored procedures are evil, that they're bad, they're hard to port, they don't allow you to do best-of-breed tools and technologies, et cetera, et cetera. There, the emphasis has very strongly been... On dynamic SQL, and And your your
0: DBAs are fine with this. Well, Java guys don't generally talk to DBAs. (laughs) But I think the mentality difference that you're seeing here is this. If you're in a Java space, you're about portability and right. platform independence. Right. And We're about procedures. vendor neutrality
4: more right. than anything else. Stored, stored not procedures even are not
0: part of the ANSI SQL standard. They've never been part right. of it. And right. so if you're going to be ANSI compliant, you're not using stored procedures. Right. And you can tell he's from Canada because he says ANSI, where the rest of us say ANSI. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the,
4: the thing of it is—I mean, the, call the whole thing off. There you go. Right. Tomato, <laughs> tomato. The thing of it is here that... The that within – certainly within the Java community, there was this this definite emphasis that stored procedures were bad because of that vendor neutrality concern. And people are starting to recognize that, you know, yes, you could use stored procedures as an abstraction layer over your database. But there are other areas – there are other ways we can abstract that as well, the ORM being one of them. The, the principal concern that people really have that I've seen with respect to stored procs and Dynamic SQL – is that if I want to, and, and again, this is a very Java-centric mentality that's starting to filter into the .NET space. If I want to build a rich domain model, if I want to do the Fowler-esque domain model, you know that 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 models my specific problem, my customers, my my assets, etc. Then I don't want to be tied to specific stored procedures. I want this to be done via dynamic SQL because I'm building off of the object domain definitions, not off of the database. Definitions.
0: And there's something that Iende said, sort of slipped in there, that for database geeks is a very important distinction, which is you, it is not really dynamic SQL; it's parameterized queries. I, I'm, I'm wondering if you're thinking from an Hibernate point of view primarily that you are sending up a canned query, a, a, co, a dynamically created query by Hibernate, which is getting a s- compiled execution plan, just like a stored procedure does, so you're going to get similar performance and you're going to call it
3: multiple times with different parameters.
0: And you don't have those uh, SQL injection problems, too, that
2: you know, I tried, concatenated strings I, I
3: actually try to create a worst practice in Hibernate uh, uh, application. So you have a, a Hibernate query that they use string concatenation. You can do minimal amount of uh, injection here. But even then, it's, you can't do any, anything of the real, the real bad stuff because you can't, in, in example, turn uh, and do a delete because it's go through several hours of parsing in the database, in the enable itself. So what enable does when it needs to generate the query, it always generates the same query. So basically what you end up is with the parameter SQL that is sent to the client, to the, to the server, and uh, it has the same property as the store procedures. The other argument, I,
4: well, with with one significant difference is which is that stored procedures execute on the database server as opposed to being executed on client side. No, right? Uh, no, I, well, I, I, no, I don't. I don't Depending think upon the significance of the the, the, the data you're processing, right? <clears throat> some of the some of the query languages, some of the ORM tools, maybe not specifically N Hibernate, but some of the ORM tools will do more of the processing client side, whereas a stored procedure would do most of that server side.
3: That depends on what you're doing. If well, you're, sure. It always no, depends on what you're doing. No, 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 no. What I'm talking about is when, when I'm talking about doing something on client side, it means that I sent a query to the database. It was processed. I got the result back, and now I need to do something with it. So if it's something that needs to go through 10 million rows and it needs to set a flag, this is something that I want to do in a stop procedure. If it's something that needs some complex business logic, this is something that I want in my domain model because now I, ha- now I have the ability to express things much in a much richer way. SQL is not a language in which I want to start specifying business concerns. It's possible. It's painful. It's not maintainable over the long run.
4: Well, see, and I'm not, and I'm not sure I agree with that entirely because one of the things that we've seen over the years is that languages come and languages go, databases remain sacrosanct. And so there is a certain categorization, there's a certain percentage of what we could reasonably consider business logic that wants to be held very close to the data. And so these are things that, I mean, we do not want to say no business logic in stored procs. We certainly do not want to say all business logic in stored procs. We don't want to be that kind of dogmatic about anything, right? But certainly from a standpoint that the database is a convenient place to put a number of business rules that have to hold, Right. Then, you know, certainly there's, there's a, there's a categorization where a stored procedure makes a tremendous amount of sense, particularly if we're talking about interoperable applications. If you're talking about a Java app and a .NET app, both of which want to access the same database, I do not want to replicate any kind of business logic between
3: these two domain models. I agree, but, but, uh, but I think that you're approaching it from the wrong angle. If you're trying to uh, do integration in the database, you are at a losing position because Because exactly the reason that you have mentioned. Now you have to start putting logic in the database. You have to start putting, uh, either duplicating the the logic in .NET and in Java or you start having to put in the database. And what I would do in such a case is basically build a service on top of that, that will serve both of, both of uh, the application. So the logic that I need to be, to build for, uh, that is shared between the two applications is basically something that you sit in the service. And now I turn the integration into something much simpler from my, uh, from my point of view. Business logic is still business logic that, I, that I can express in an object oriented language using my domain, my domain uh, model of choice. I still get integration with both, with both system. And now I also get integration in a higher level. I no longer have to send an update query to the database or call update customer. I can now send a message update. I can now send the message update customer address, and now it has a, a far, a far more a explicit business meaning.
4: Well, see, I'm not sure that's true at all, because when you talk about building a service, you're talking about creating a, another layer, right? You're talking about creating potentially another layer, potentially another tier within your system. So now you could be talking about a second round trip, a second network tra- you know transfer that has to take place. So now you've just doubled the amount of time I'm spending on the wire. Plus, you also have to create, you talked about sending a message. I have to create a messaging model which, for many applications, is going to be a duplication of, or at least a near duplication, of the object model itself. And so I don't think we can blindly say, you know, oh, well, the, the answer here is to create a service. I think in many cases, particularly for those situations where I have a database, I have a Java system that needs to process it, I have a .NET system to process it, to say throw a service in front of it just to hold a certain amount of business logic – Right. I mean, I I could get pithy and I could say, oh, well, the stored procedure is your service, right? We could simply call that a service by another name using the SQL model instead of the XML model. It's well understood. Both languages have a very easy integration with that model. I think that's a pithy way to say it, but we could certainly argue that for a while. The stored proc approach, right, effectively gives me that same degree of description with only one round trip across the network. And I can incorporate the business logic inside that database.
3: If uh, we, are to- we are starting, we are starting to get into a more and more specific concerns here. But you are talking about transcripts, and I have no no uh, issue with putting the service inside the database, which means either SQL Server or maybe putting it in a Oracle Java. Uh, well,
4: why do I even want to take another type? Why do I even want to
3: take the transition to XML if
4: I don't have to? Because that's an impedance send, mismatch in of itself. Send, uh,
3: from, from my point of view, send the result as a, a result set uh, from the, from the service. What I'm care, what I'm uh, interested in here is that the integration doesn't happen in the, in the uh, database layer. Because when you start having uh, such databases that two systems talk to, you're in your, Unable to make any significant changes to the database without starting to affecting a lot of systems.
4: Well, anytime you start making significant changes to a relational database that's in production, you start affecting significant systems. Period. End of story. Regardless
3: of what's fronting them. The I issue mean, is how how much and how if if you can version, if you can version it appropriately. I think that if you have one system to talk to it, to its own database and you are making significant changes, changes this is one thing. If you are starting to we touch the main database for all the the organization. That every uh, every application in the uh, in the in the organization talks to this database and it's in, it expect these exact parameters and this exact topology and this exact view or table or whatever. Then it's becoming much harder to make any sort of modification. And I've seen databases. Well, and
4: and that's exactly the point, right? Because the database schema is a visible thing that lots of people depend on if you create an encapsulation layer around that database model which basically a stored procedure is right it is that encapsulation layer around that model but it's based on a technology that we understand b a, a technology that we know scales well that we see we have administrators who know how to deal with it and quite frankly for the reasons richard mentioned earlier we have some security restrictions that we can put around it. It's a type system that's already well understood, well-debugged, well-mapped in terms of how Java and .NET and Ruby and all these other languages talk to it, right? So the notion of the stored procedure as an encapsulation layer, because that's basically what we want at the end of the day out of a service, is loose coupling between
3: two systems, it's, Java and .NET. It's not loose coupling because the moment that you have – No, it not, is
4: loose coupling, dude. You're no, wrong. No, no. no it's yes, not loose coupling wrong. because you're, you're coupled to the data schema. You just don't want to admit it. it. Services are about loose coupling. Period. End of start.
3: I, just a second. Service is also about versioning and the ability to make a change. And that's loose coupling. Yes. Okay. So uh, but, we're good. Um, you're right. I agree, it's, 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 we that, agree that it's working. loose coupling.
4: Yes. Okay, okay cool. Okay. Then let's
2: but, move
3: on. Next question. <laughs> uh, this is Jerry Springer. If you're just tuning in. What I'm if you're trying just tuning to, in. Just let me try to finish. What I'm trying to say you can do it in store procedures. I wouldn't do. I wouldn't recommend doing it for the reason that I've already mentioned. There are there are issues with what you're saying, but I don't think that they're unsolvable. And I do think that to putting the abstraction layer away from the database will make it easier to work with. Even if it just means that I can uh, swap the database for testing. It makes it a lot easier to work with uh,
4: the in application. And right there, you walked into one of my biggest pet peeves because there are a lot of people in the Java space who 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 talked about the avoidance of stored procedures so that someday we could plug and play our our databases, right? I do so that. we could swap out databases. I do that. And the fact is, when you do that, you take a significant hit in terms of being able to take advantage of vendor-specific features. Um, that means that, for example, you can't use the auto increment column, the column type in SQL Server. Because it's not supported on Oracle. Yes, it's can. not supported on MySQL. It's not supported on these other databases. Um, it's yes, not I a can. part of the SQL 92 standard.
3: I don't care. I can run, I can right now uh, take my application. It's working against a SQL Server 2005. I'm right. testing it against in memory SQLite database and against SQL, SQL C uh, embedded d- DB. Sure, because can, you're
4: taking a subset of those features. Yes, you're not taking advantage wa- of, for that, example, the
3: XML type in SQL Server 2005. No, I I can and I do. All I need is to provide uh, the different approaches for each database and I can do it in the mapping. So I, so I may have, I may have to specify a different approach for a, a primary column in each database, but it's not very hard. And frankly, I have a pre-processing on the mapping before I push, push them into an Hibernate. So I can do exactly this thing.
4: Well, see, the thing that you're running into, though, is now you're saying, I'm going to have not only... I mean, if you're taking advantage of the SQL column type in SQL Server 2005, how does that column map to, say, SQLite? Is it just a string? Yes. So you're not taking advantage of XPath-style queries from within the SQL Server 2005 when you write them?
3: Generally, no. I I still haven't found a, a use case for them in my applications. So when I would... I will have to find a solution for that. I do agree that when you're talking about uh, starting to think in portability, you are losing the ability to use the speci- the uh, advantage of the platform that you, are, that you are working on. Generally, I don't recommend to do that. Mm-hmm. I do recommend that you take each and every advantage that you can on the platform that you are working on. I just think that you can still do it uh, in a way that you can take the advantage when it is possible, and when it's not possible, you, you, you have to uh, pass it up.
4: Well, see, and that's, that's kind of my point, which is to say the stored procedure functionality. Again, I'm not trying to be dogmatic about this. I'm not saying all business logic should go into a stored proc. I'm not saying that you should never try to plug and play your databases. Cause again, there are certain scenarios where you want and need to be able to do these kinds of things. No argument there, but too much has been sacrificed on the altar of portability and vendor neutrality absolutely. for me to stand back and hear somebody say, oh, well, and I want to be able to you know, plug and play my databases and not stand up and say, dude, when you do that, you are sacrificing a significant amount of functionality within that particular – I mean, even to the point where you're tuning your SQL, right – there's a, a great – I think it's a Morgan Kaufman book called Database Tuning, right, Database Performance Tuning. And they do a number of performance tuning uh, use cases, right, where they say, here's a query and we're going to tune this query. And as it turns out, they do it against eight you know, what they call the big eight, eight major databases at the time the book was written, which include five commercial and three open source databases, and what they found is no one single tuning gains you benefit on all eight databases. And in many cases, tuning it one way gains you benefit on one database and actually gains, you know hurts your performance on a second database. So this notion of I can just swap my databases around to me is the voice, uh, no offense to you, but it's the voice of the ignorant developer who looks at the relational database as just someplace I can store stuff. It's a file system by another name. And
3: that's where I start getting really, you know, annoyed with people. No, I would agree with everything that you said with the condition that I don't think that a dogmatic, the dogmatic approach uh, is correct. And yes, there is a place for store procedures. I just. I think that the uh, difference in our opinion is where you, where I draw the line for SQL, uh, for store procedure or mm-hmm. uh, service and when you do it. So. Yeah. Well,
4: we, I mean, we can certainly disagree in terms of making those kinds of value judgments, right? Uh, my concern is just, you know, let's not stand up and hold up dogma for people to start chanting as they put on their, <laughs> their
2: way. I think that's the, the challenge in talking about any technology that's complex like this, which is without some sort of context, without some sort of, all right, let's take application X with requirements Y, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're really, you know, we, we don't have, I mean, best practices include a context. Right. Yeah, what we really need is like a sample
4: application, like maybe, I don't know, some kind of e-commerce, like say maybe a pet store online that we could
0: do. Oh, never mind. That's already been done. Sorry. Sorry. I, I do get a sense that you look at the stored procedures, you being Ted, look at the <laughs> stored procedures as a layer of abstraction for taking advantage of the platform. Right. And Allende seems to be talking about that same abstraction layer living inside ORM, that he's going to be able to take advantage of those things right. in his code. Which really goes back to, I think, a philosophical difference between these different ORM implementations where one is very much centric on the database and you have database talent that's building a better database than any code would generate. Right. Another where the talent's in the programming and you're allowing the program to generate the database. Well, this is, this is one of the this is part of
4: the Vietnam of computer science, right? You knew I, I had, was wondering if you were going to drag that I line up. I was going to ask. I had to drag it in. I okay, had to. Drag I'm glad
0: it in. it's here because otherwise I was going to bring it to you and say <laughs> you said
4: this. Now I what? did.
0: I did, and you know and I disagreed. And, and, and for
4: for you know for those who haven't read the essay, I wrote an essay about a year ago, basically saying that object relational mapping is the Vietnam of computer science, and part of that is this idea of Who really owns the relational database? Who really owns what's being done inside of there? And to a lot of developers, they believe they own it. They believe that they're the ones who get to define the schema and revise the schema and so forth. And for a lot of IT departments, that comes as a very, very brutal surprise. And developers are in for a rude awakening because a lot of reporting, particularly the larger the organization you get – the more that the database maintenance and the database reporting tasks are handled by DBAs. While and when d- they start to look at – hang on a second. When they start to look at a relational schema, for example, generated by Hibernate 3 schem- uh, Schema Gen utility – right with its you know discriminator field that just gets dropped into a table in order to support inheritance and so forth they look at this and go woo I, I don't know how i can throw crystal reports against this one of the most egregious examples of this was a very early uh, bea web logic ejb release where ejb the entity bean uh, framework decided they would go ahead and generate the 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 schema for you and um I was talking with a company that that used this utility, and they said, yeah, we went ahead and developed the entity beans, and we pushed it into production, and we started running against it, and our DBAs called up and said, what the f*** have you done to our database? And the, the, the developers were stunned. What are you talking about, right? Nice entity model, right? Well, turns out what BA WebLogic had schema generated in terms of the database level was every table consisted of two columns. An auto incrementing integer ID field and a blob containing the serialized Java object representation. That's fun to do a report from or do a query. But I mean, it's a report
0: proof database.
4: Pretty much. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yes. This is making sure your data is very secure. Nobody can get to it. So are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates. Rad controls for ASP.NET, rad controls for WinForms. The first official version of the Telerik reporting tool and a brand new suite codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep? Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax and it'll become the successor of Rad Controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, Rad Controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForms suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting, the product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls EaseAbility, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for
3: ASP.NET. But my point about it, I, why are you doing reports from the uh, online uh, online database? The the two has fairly significant changes and fairly significant requirements. The second thing in my current project, I generate all my all my uh, schema from the entity model. What this allows me to do is to make any kind of refactoring to my uh, entity model. So add a field, remove a field, move it somewhere. And I just compile the code, run, and, and this run the build and this building my database from scratch. So but not, that right there is the problem. Just because a once you go into V1. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do that. Absolutely. Right, right. Absolutely.
4: And that creates a tight coupling between your code and the database schema. No, it doesn't. Which, well, unless you're going to tell me how you're going to make that. Well, let him finish
3: here. All right. So. Uh, let, until I get to V1, where I have a fairly stable uh, database uh, model, database schema. The, in V1, I, I will probably have a, a database schema that is stable. I will have it uh, run through a performance setting so I can see that, oh, in this page, in this query, I need to do, to add an index. I need to do something like that. Uh, maybe I need to rewrite the query myself or, some, or uh, things of this order. For V2, I now need to, ha- to be a lot more careful be now, because now I'm working against an established database. Maybe I can change it. Maybe I can't. Probably I can't because there are uh, already all sorts of SSAS uh, uh, integration uh, se- integration services, ETL processes start uh, are running against it. So the schema is mostly fixed. Now I want to do uh, to start adding things, to start modifying things. And now, I'm g- now I'm in the world of database refactoring. And there right. are, there are tools and ways and processes to do that. And so now I'm no, no longer be able to generate my database from scratch. Now, now I have to start versioning the database in a way that I would have done it anyway. So I don't see until the V1, I get a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility. After V1, I'm in the same world where I was before, where I need to version any change to the database. and I need to make sure that it fits with the DBA, with fits fit with the current ETL processes and it fits with a uh, reporting that are generated right. and everything like that. Right.
4: Well, and, and Scott Ambler has basically, I mean, he's published like, you know, 500 pages on how to do database refactoring, which consists of, you know, 28 ways to use triggers and stored products to maintain, you know, the, the quote-unquote old schema and slowly migrate things over to the new schema. I think, you know, the, the, the issue here, quite frankly, from a refactoring perspective is that database refactoring sucks. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, and and this is this is part of the problem that I see with a lot of the ORMs is that developers will adopt an ORM. Right. They will adopt it in many cases blindly. Again, there's, there's a rant here against dogma more than anything else, but they'll adopt like a hibernate or a JPA or, you know, an hibernate or an, an, a, 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 some of the other ORM tools in the .NET space. I don't want to name any by name because, you know, <laughs> people might get upset with me. Right. But I mean, Oracle Toplink, for example. You adopt one of those, right? Well, yeah. Well, not, we don't care if the Oracle people get upset. This is a .NET show. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, here, I'll just say it. for Oracle. Anyway, <laughs> um, the, the,
3: <laughs> I would agree with this statement, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> talking with, talking to someone that needs to interface to Oracle database with 31,000 tables. Uh, yeah.
4: Well, that's not
3: Oracle's problem. <laughs> that's, that's your company's no, problem.
4: No, no, no. But the point is simply that that a lot of the a lot of the the desire for an ORM is basically I want to I want to provide an abstraction layer on top of my relational database. I want to think in you know terms that are just domain objects. I want to see objects, objects, and nothing but objects. And this this is a leaky abstraction. This is a horribly leaky abstraction. No, and it. Well, it catches a lot of people off guard at how leaky it really is. I mean, you really have to start thinking. I mean, you talk about a simple inheritance hierarchy inside of the object space. You have at least three different ways to model this within your relational database. Each of with it, each of with well, each of which with its own <laughs> pros and cons. <laughs> And and these 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 consequences of selecting one versus the other are definitely
0: non-trivial in terms of the, the the changes between them. I do get a sense that there's a very distinctive difference in philosophy here between the in-hibernate approach of no, really really you get that? honest. no, that's these why I have guys grasp sitting on a, of the obvious. Yes. <laughs> 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 that's what
3: mean, the, hey Richard, that's did you, you know we were seeking... sitting in a theater too? Did you notice the disco ball up there? So, what, that is why we're sitting on the separate uh, edges of the table. So, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't reach and grab someone. Yeah.
4: They're, they're, outs, they're outside <laughs> of
3: strangling range. Yeah,
4: exactly. I noticed that you each, you and Carl, sat about as far to the edge of the table as possible. Yeah, we're keeping To, it to keep us back. away from, from.
0: We may have to add the word bitch slap in front of SmackDown. <laughs> <laughs> I'll meet you at the bike rack after school, man. But Iende was talking about how NHibernate generated the database, and right. your approach is very much describing a database that exists right. and uh, and an abstraction layer that sits over top of that database to communicate to my objects. Well, I think at the end of the day, and, and I think this, this
4: is something that Ende will agree with, you know, realistically speaking, a developer has to decide which is in charge here, right? With any impedance mismatch, you have to decide who, which one is going to be slaved to the other? Which model wins? Do I want to, as Allende wants to, do I want my relational model to be enslaved to my object model? or as i want to do i want my uh object model
0: to be slave to my relational model so I mean, which
4: one wins which one gets to make this the, the
0: decision where do i add my field do i add it to my object and it appears in my database or do i add it to my database and it appears in my object it's not even so much that it's that if there is a
4: discrepancy right those are those are pretty easy to see migrate between you know to, to migrate between the two models pretty flawlessly where i find myself you know trying to deal with A discrepancy between the two. So for example, do I use inheritance in my domain model? Because that, if I do that and I try to persist that into the relational database, the relational model is going to get much more complicated than if I don't. So do I use inheritance or not? The developers, the object guys will say, of course you do, because that's an important part of how we model the world. The relational guys are going to say, oh hell no, that's not the way we model the world. And it's really a question of, who, who wins, right? Who, who's, who's got the greater pull within this particular project? For certain projects, particularly V1, the developers can have much greater pull because, hey, oftentimes the DBAs don't even see the schema until you're ready to deploy,
3: right? A team is ready to cry.
4: Yeah. Uh. And, and, you know, in, in other scenarios where the database pre-exists, which has been the majority of the, the projects I've been on, quite frankly, you don't have the opportunity to create a greenfield database schema. You have to work with what's already there. So the idea of being able to change the schema and refactor the schema based on Hibernate Schema Gen Tool or any other tool, is a non-starter. You have to work with what's already there. But
3: the tools exist in they able to work with the most complex schema that I've been able to try them. I have a database schema that I have inherited from in mainframe so it has such lovely tables as TBL123 and uh, oh, nice. And you no, know, you have to understand the fields. The fields, the columns in these is uh, what FLD are they called, ABC a, ABCD <laughs> Oh god, I guess it. String nullable. <laughs> So, and if you have A in field A... Then the field B is the customer ID. If you have B in field A, then the customer, the customer ID is in field G.
4: Yeah, but, but so, hang on, hang on, hang on. What, what you're describing there, I mean, you know, Christopher Date isn't even dead yet and he's rolling over in his grave. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a relational model. That's that a flat is, file.
3: That is a flat file. That that's a flat file. That's not a, a relational model. Literally. That is, a, this is a model that inherited from mainframe. Right. But, but, but that's not, that, that's, that's not a, that mainframe is still in operation. That doesn't even, that doesn't even fit first normal form. That doesn't even fit zeroth normal form. (laughs) I mean, come on. That's,
0: I mean, what you're saying is that's just not normal. That's just not normal. (laughs) That's not right.
3: But that is something that I've been able with a schema that I cannot change to make an alert work with. So it's complex and it's literally took a, a lot of time, but it was a lot, a lot more easier now because now I don't need, now I don't need to get a new developer and tell him, look, Here is the schema. You have A, B, C, D, and this is the relationship. Here is the table uh, of uh, how you figure out stuff. Now it's much easier because it has a customer object. It has, it can follow the, uh, the natural object graph uh, very easily. So yes, they should understand what's going on under the cover. They should understand that uh, this line of code will execute a, a SQL query. And if you put it in a loop, you will have 10,000 lines of, 10,000 queries to the database. And I don't care if you don't see the uh, connection, uh, the SQL connection uh, open method. This is what will happen. Um as you guys
2: are talking about these challenges, the of, of you know where who owns the the uh process, uh, I can't help but thinking of uh something a wise man once said, which was every problem can be solved by adding another layer of indirection. Except too many layers of indirection. Okay. That's good, except too many layers of indirection. Um has anybody ever it might be a totally dumb question, but has anybody ever tried the approach of Using a separate database just for the ORM that talks to the real database.
3: That's what I'm doing now. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't really want to do it unless the database is really in a bad state. Well, there's, there's, there's other approaches there
4: too, which is to say, um, and, and I don't know how much experience you've had with these, but there is the object database. Right. There are object. I mean, we're into the second generation of object database vendors now, right? I've been working with the guys at DB4O, uh, because they've been asking me to do a, uh, sort of a follow-up Vietnam paper describing how an object database can avoid some of the issues. So be the
2: Iraq paper, maybe? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no.
4: I'm staying away from the Iraq thing, right? History hasn't judged Iraq yet. I only deal with old wars. Um. <laughs> The, the the thing is simply that, you know, the, the object database can avoid a lot of these mapping issues because what's, you know, the schema, you know, one of the problems of the ORM is you have the dual schema problem. You have your class model and then you have your relational model, which one is in charge, which one's slaves to the other, etc. In an object database, the schema is the class model. There's no separation here. So refactoring is a snap, and it's very easy to store these, and it deals with inheritance and so forth. And what a number of db4o's customers have found is that the db4o database makes for a very good uh, sort of object store, which can then – they have a replication uh, tool, utility format, whatever you want to call it, where you can replicate out of the db4o instance and into – a, a regular relational database suitable for reporting
2: and queries and everything
4: else. Bingo! Exactly. And so this almost, in some cases, mimics the difference between your OLTP, your OLTP database, and your reporting database. Uh, OTLP, OLTP, whatever. Online transaction process. OLTP. I got it right. I got it right. Shut <laughs> up, Richard. Um, <laughs> Dude, it's late. Don't confuse me that Give way. Give that man a red card. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it, it's a, it's a very, it's a very common, uh, uh, tiering process because then, number one, you're talking to a local representation, you know, your local, uh, repository. I mean, you're not necessarily traversing the network. Then when you replicate, you push it across the wire into the main database. You can replicate in both the directions, DB4O if you like. or
3: database or the, RDB4O, the You database? push it
4: in, you, your objects get stored in DB4O and then they have a replication process that occurs through some asynchronous process, batch or
2: continuous or whatever, but it replicates into the RDBMS. I and had, you still have a problem. Uh, j- you're just move, you're just localizing it to one no, thing, no. replication. And so how do I handle it right.
3: in such an area? How do I handle a, a, a web farm? I have a, a single database, single DB4 database, so I am paying for the network connection.
4: Well, see, in, in some cases, And again, the DB4O guys could, I mean, you know, they could talk for days about all of this. I don't want to get specifically into their implementation, but specifically what you would, what you would do to solve the, the farm example is I can certainly have a single central relational database if I need that data to be in a relational form. But I can easily, for example, push things from the relational database into the individual DB4O databases that are
3: sitting on each of the individual web farm machines. But then you have the classic problem of synchronization because you have. Sure. So basically what you're, what you're talking about is that I have a local object store, which is simply a cache for the RDBMS. Agreed. So. Agreed. I from, mean, that's, that's my, the same
4: basic concept no, of what from we're my, dealing from,
3: with. From the way I look at it. This is a this is a completely ORM problem. You just push the a uh, uh, relation uh, relation mapping into the replication process. Sure, absolutely. So, but the,
4: the 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 distinction here is it's not one that the developers have to deal with on a daily basis, and it's one that can be handled in such a fashion that the refactoring that we do against our domain model does not need to be replicated directly against the I relational ag- database. I, I don't
3: agree. If I'm if I'm adding a field to my mo- to my model you need to start you need to basically modify the central database and then modify the replication process not all
4: refactorings are modifying what's stored in the database though and there may be data that we want to hold locally that's not going to be held in the not relational in database scenario. And
3: uh, I, I, I think you're making some very significant assumptions there i'm making the assumption that I w- that i want to scale and my Default uh, default assumption of scaling is that I want to uh, is I want to throw more hardware more hardware at the problem, because it's easier to uh, than to Well, throw that has more nothing to do with problems. refactoring. No, 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 it doesn't have to do with refactoring. But it isn't consideration that I want to to have. So if I have a local object store and I have some sort of a RDBMS that I replicating too, then I still have the same problem why why aren't all the web farms talking to the same object database because you then you then you start to have the same issue of a, a network a network bandwidth so if you the classic example customer orders and orders lines if you are in the same ob- in the same memory space you have very little cost of traver- of traversing the object graph if you are in separate machines then traversing the object graph may mean that you need to to fetch more data from some distance machine. This but that's has, true
4: of the ORM scenario too. Absolutely, but right.
3: I have solutions for this. I have eager well, so do the
4: object guys. Okay, no, I mean they they have they have this notion of activation graph where we yeah, can we can constrain yes, but how deeply down the graph this stuff will be activated. Okay, I
3: agree. But what I'm what I'm trying to say that I don't see any any uh, architecture difference between the two and in, in if i'm looking at it from a uh, uh, from this level it's basically the same thing you're just pushing the 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 interaction between the relation model and the uh, uh, f- between the object model and the relation model into some other place and i don't think that you can Say that it's help refactoring. If I'm splitting a class, if I'm making some sort of a a refactoring that is big enough to affect the database when I'm using an ORM, then I would need to change all the, all the code down the line, the replication process, the database schema, any sort of ETL process that they have in place as well in the, in the object oriented database.
4: Well, uh, there's, there's a couple of things, right? In, in, in an ODBMS. And again, I'm not, I'm not dogmatically suggesting that an ODBMS is the solution to all our problems, right? It would um, be nice if it was. because it would it's be. V- because would it's be. very and, and a number of the, the ODBMS vendors will stand up and say, we got a very bad rap. We can scale. We can store the same kind of data that an RDBMS does. We don't have the performance issues. Those were the first generation of ODBMSs. And guess what? The first generation of RDBMSs sucked too, <laughs> right? Um You know, so, so if you looked at an ODBMS ages ago, you might want to look at them again. The, the, the thing that you run into there is if you are going to talk to an ODBMS across the wire, you do need to be careful of, you know, the number of round chips you do. But in terms of refactoring, I mean, refactoring is principally a developer concern and we don't refactor against a production server on a regular basis right i refactor against my development I, I i refactor against my development server right and then eventually i'm going to need to push that into production so i only need to do the refactoring against the production server once so i only have to do that down the line refactoring when i get to that point of pushing it into the production server
3: Okay, so I still don't understand why this is any different from if I would have used an ORM to data.
4: Well, because when you get into V two, right? You get into V two, and you need to start refactoring against your relational data store, right? Mm-hmm. Again, it's not the production server, but you're still having to figure out you're you're having to drop the schema and re- and, and
3: restore it. No, you don't do Or that.
4: else you're having to do all the database refactoring stuff that Scott Ambler talks about, mm-hmm. right? In the ODBMS scenario, there's nothing that's left to be done.
3: I change my code, I, I need...
4: recompile, I store, I'm done.
3: No, you're not, because you now have to deal with the replication to the RDBMS. Dude,
4: that's what, well, that replication can be dealt with at a later point after and all, all can... the refactorings are done.
3: No. So, uh, so, uh, my approach to this, if I, if I'm taking this approach, I will still regenerate the schema at any point of time, and when I finish with my V2, I make a, comparis- a, a, a comparison between my V1 schema and my V2 schema. And then I can either do the refactoring or I can decide, no, this is too big. Let us scale down some of the database refactoring that we have made. And we have the tools to still keep the refactoring in the object model and have a different model inside the database. And still, this is, sing- this is still a single point when I'm making the change into the production server. But you're still, I
4: mean, again, you're still doing a tremendous amount of work at each, at each change, right? You're saying. What
3: amount of work? I don't see the amount of work that I need to choose. Well,
4: you're talking about, as I make my development changes, right? You have to change, for example, your mapping configuration, right? if i add more fields because again you don't want to just completely regen the schema greenfield because you don't you know you're talking you said in in your explanation just now you're going to continue to regen the schema each time and then when you get to the point at the tail end right okay we're about ready to go into production let's do a schema diff and see mm-hmm. how they're different and then say oh crap we don't want to do that kind of wide scale refactoring no, that's not the way that I want to work. I want to, I want to be able to do those refactorings all along the way. I don't want to get caught up to the point where it's the 11th hour I have to ship. And now I do the schema diff. If
3: you're doing it in the 11th hour, you deserve what you get? I'm, t- I'm talking in general terms here. Seriously, if you're, if you're waiting for QA uh, to the wiki for shipping, then you probably, find well, then a you're lot of suggesting bugs.
4: that you have to do that schema diff during your development process as well, and correct?
3: I, what I'm, what I'm saying that I don't see any, a difference between I have made a, a significant amount of change in the O database. Right. And now I'm trying to resolve that with my V1 schema on the, on the production database. I the, still have, I still may need to do significant changes to the RDBMS V1 schema. And I still may want to, and I still may decide, no, this is not an option.
4: Basically what this, what this separation allows you to do, right, is allows you to break the tight coupling that a, that an ORM builds, whether by accident or by intent, it builds a tight coupling between my object model and my relational schema by storing to an object database, right? There's clearly a tight coupling there. And that's one of the principal criticisms of the object database is, hey, what if I want to go at this object database with some kind of reporting tool? You Forget it. The, you, it's not going to happen unless you build it yourself, right? But there that tight coupling is acceptable and and manageable Now when I try to push this into the relational database... Right. I don't have to push all of the data that's stored in the object database. As you said, we can treat it as a cache. There may be types that I want to work with in my domain model that don't have straight correspondence inside of the relational model, just like you see between an OLTP database and and a reporting database, an OLAP database. Um that degree of separation can allow me to draw a very clear boundary between what I'm working with here locally inside this tier and what actually gets pushed across the wire.
3: So just a second, let me if I can understand. You have basically two databases here that are meaningful. You have the database that is used for reporting for the organization need to know what happened inside the application. And then you have the application database, which is no one's concern except the application.
4: It's a, it's a purely local concern.
3: Okay. So as far as I'm concerned, I can do the same with a relation with an ORM where, where I define, like Carl said before, I have two databases. Mm-hmm. One is for my, is it's, it's uh, my uh, RDBMS. And the second is someone is the DBA that can own it and can do all sort of reports and ETL stuff that he wants on it. Sure. And right now I have the, this Oracle with the 31,000 tables uh, database, which is the database that I'm supposed to be using. And frankly, I just bring the data into my application, into my uh, object model. And this is how it's, and this is a lot easier, both for me, both for the DBA that need to handle this uh, database in the end, because now. Now And I feel bad for him. No. Uh, the bet for him is another matter. If they got to 31,000 tables, you have to understand, I accidentally opened the, in SSS, opened the table list in the Oracle database. So you can imagine that I went to lunch and came back and it's still waiting for that. Oh, you should have seen table V, man. That was, <laughs> oh, I bet that was where the real secret sauce was. Yeah. After, after that happened, I did a check and 31,043 one tables in the database. Yeah. Yeah, that is well, and, the and, biggest that I've ever, ever seen. Again, right? Part of
4: part of what I like about the object database as opposed to the relational database is that you know there is no distinction, right? It, regardless of if you're automating your schema gen step, right? It's still one more step than I'm doing when because I, I compile
3: the code and then I run the code. Um I thi- I think it, uh, that that's what I do as well. The only things that I that I need to do beyond that is usually I decorate it with with an attribute that tell the inhabit this is a persisted field or this is not a persisted field, but I can see the value in having a one to one mapping in a, where one of the most common issues with RD, with RDBMS is that is the relation the inheritance hierarchy something like a, a association for a, any type. So if I want to have an association to a customer or to an employee or to a a car, then this is something that in the database is a lot harder to do. Mm -hmm. In an object-oriented database, this would be a lot easier, and... This is something that to do that I would be really interested to test you know real projects with real requirements, not something in the lab
4: yeah well, I mean so, and again you know i I will, I will mention you know again the the, the Db for guys they 're not going to be able to store you know multi terabytes or multi gigabytes worth of data because their original implementation was intended for small devices and the persistence market and so forth um, they 've only really sort of moved into you know some of this quote unquote enterprisey space because I've basically pointed out to them that if services hold true and the service acts as a barrier, an encapsulation barrier, then persistence really does become an implementation concern and a large part of the reason to use a relational database, which is to say ease of access from other environments, falls out. Now you always go through the service interface and you would never access the data directly.
2: And I I realize that uh, we're coming. We've we've been speaking here for almost an hour, wow. and nobody has talked about the entity framework yet.
3: <laughs> the entity framework is an attempt to build an, OOD, an OODB without calling it by this name, and and without actually having all the benefits. And uh, by the way, just to for what I said, I agree. This is the. Best way, I think, to go forward with that. And back to the entity framework. In the DNR talk with Daniel about the entity framework, he said that they want to have some sort of way to relax the relational constraint on the entity model that they have. And once they do that, they lose the relational model completely, as far as i concerned. Because if you don't have everything in the relational model, you don't have a relational model at all. So now you're moving to to a place where the only thing that you have is a, a, the entity model. And this is an object-oriented database. See, I, I, I have to be honest, right? I look at what, I look at what Microsoft wants to do
4: with Link, right? With, with, in terms of Link and D-Link and X-Link and some of these things, which are, which are, in many respects, trying to bring, you know, set and relational style of concepts into this language. And that's a good thing. But what they're trying to do with the entity framework, quite frankly, I think Microsoft is headed for Vietnam. To be very, very blunt about it. I think they are making many of the same mistakes. Because it's not like this ORM thing, right, has ever generated really a single size fits all kind of solution. (laughs) And I think that's what Microsoft is really trying to build. Because that's what they, that's what they believe they do best at is building these single size fits all, uh, implementations. And I think they're going to find that, you know, they're going to go some distance with this and go, oh, crap, right? I One of the principal criticisms I've heard about link is it doesn't talk to stored procs. So all those people out there who've built databases using stored procs are going to find themselves in a very sort of weird, uncomfortable space. Linkless? What's that?
0: <laughs> they're going to be linkless?
4: They're going to be linkless. Yes, I guess that's true. Uh, well, if anything, they're going to be link-impaired. Right. It's, it's. You politically correct? Me politically correct? No one has ever accused me of being politically correct. Ever. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is a serious problem that Microsoft has to face. And, you know, coupled with the fact that a lot of people don't do the dynamic SQL thing inside of the .NET space, you really kind of get this sense that Microsoft is trying to finally address those accusations that Microsoft doesn't have an equivalent to EJB entity beans. Well, let me tell you how entity beans went in the Java space, guys. They sucked. They're terrible, and we we hate them. They, you know, they 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 died a painful and glorious death, and we all cheered. And good riddance, and good riddance absolutely. So I, I I just I look at this, and it's like I like Link, I like D-Link, I like X-Link, I like the language extensions they're doing. But when we get to the entity framework, I've I I feel like Microsoft is stepping
0: down that slippery slope. Well, and I notice that it's pushed out of Orcus now.
4: Well, well, yeah, there's, there's, you know, whether or not it will ship, anybody remember object spaces? Ah, now you mean unfair. Well, okay, but until it ships, right, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, cause remember object spaces, man, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Oh, psych.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's. <laughs> I, the main issues that I have with the entity framework, it's way, way, way too complex to what it needs. The. case that is going to be used is in one-to-one or near one-to-one mapping. And it started to build this whole entity model and uh, conceptual model, logical model and any other sort of model in the, and meta model and meta meta model and all sorts of stuff that, okay, it's interesting in the abstract. I want to build a software. So I now, uh, so I now have to, uh, to use a tool that I can't really use without uh, the the wizard and the uh, all the nice UI tools and what happens when I need to step outside of this very comfortable wizard-driven uh, diagram-driven uh, world and what I, what happens to me in in almost any uh, let's the let's the tool wrap the ugliness then I need to step outside and I have to face this ugliness and I get this very uncomfortable feeling that that. Why do I have to do all this work to make something this simple work? And they're trying to do a lot of a lot of stuff. They're trying to build a very ambitious project. I think that they're they are trying to build too much and they are not uh, they're actually not trying to separate the feature, the V1 features, into coherent story.
2: So you guys pretty much agree on that. So we can basically cut out that whole section, right?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, at the end of the day, there's there's you know within within the the, the uh, w- within the ORM space, within the object space, there's been a number of attempts to create these query languages, right? Of which you could arguably say the Entity Framework and Link are one that you know mimic SQL. And it's like, why do we have to create something that looks like SQL? Why don't we just use SQL? Let's make it easier to harvest stuff out of the database. Let's bring some set and, you know, structural typing stru- constructs into our, let's bring the, instead of trying to bring the objects to the relational database, let's bring the relations inside the object
3: language. And here I don't agree because I don't work in the, my object model like I would work inside the database. So I think that link itself in the language integrated query, not in the link, uh, all the rest of the frameworks, that they are there is a good step because it's bringing me the ability to express intent in a more clear way. So the link itself is very, is very interesting. The set base. But trying to say, let us bring the SQL into the language itself. I don't necessarily want SQL. Yes, I want relational
4: know. concepts, which is a very okay. different, con- and very link, different
3: thing. Da- link does that.
4: Link does that. That's link why I like it. Link. Yes, yes. We yes, agree. Yes. So but you can cut that segment out too.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, what you don't agree is to what people build on top of Link. Link to SQL, link to Entity, stuff like that. I built in, uh, I and a, a guy called uh, Bobby Diaz build Link for, for Hibernate. And it's a uh, not very big project right now, but it supports quite a few of what a Link for SQL, or Link for Entity can do. So basically we just need to map the concept from the, from the Link query to the Hibernate query that matches this. And it's very, it's very simple to do. It's very easy to do. The possibilities that I have now, when I can basically take some sort of a, a, a code as data and do transformation on it, is very powerful.
2: Uh, guys, uh, it's about time to wrap it up. So I'll just ask each of you to make a final statement, and then we can go have a beer. I'm right. He's wrong. All right. And you? No. Uh, <laughs> he's <laughs> lies. I, I guess, you know, my big
4: thing would simply be, you know, an ORM is not going to save you from the object relational impedance mismatch. It may make things easier for you to manage, but, but, you know, this is a leaky abstraction. We need to just accept that. You need to basically, decide where you want to be on the continuum. And I mean, to a large degree, you can use an RM, and Hibernate or or Hibernate or whatever, to to, you know, simplify your development life, to take the easiest 80% and then use the remaining 20% to just write straight SQL and do those hard things that an HQL or something else may not be able to accomplish for you. But don't expect that an RM is going to completely close the loop and remove uh, the relational database from view—it's never going to go away. You just have to accept that it's a leaky abstraction.
3: And okay. I, leaky abstraction, well and good. If you're not having to be aware of this leaky ab- abstraction all the time, then you got twenty percent of the way done. And I agree, by the way, with everything that he just said, which is pity because I w- I'm, not, I'm probably not supposed to. <laughs> so. Basically, be aware of the leaky obstruction and be aware of what's happening. This is very important. Still accept that even a leaky obstruction, and I'm probably the wrong guy to say that because I keep harping on leaky obstruction why they're bad. Even a leaky obstruction can provide a lot of value. And do try to, uh, to stay away from this is wrong, this is right. Accept the situation. Evaluate the concept based on the situation. Don't be dogmatic. Yes, very. Very much. All right, guys. Thanks. It's been great uh,
2: to have you on the show, and uh, it's been great to be here at DevTeach. And what can we say? Thanks again. Thanks, Carl. (laughs) (laughs) .NET rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post production. And podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com..net rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.net.